Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mission Success, Women in Multifamily, the monthly podcast series dedicated to powerful female leaders in the multifamily industry. I'm Laura Kalugar, Senior Editor with Multi-Housing News. The current fluctuating market conditions are making it quite difficult for investment companies to be active. And when those companies focus on affordable housing and socially responsible investments, things can become even more complicated. As FCP Vice President, Alicia Hill is responsible for expanding the firm's impact investing multifamily platform, as well as advancing firm-wide strategic initiatives within social impact and ESG. What's it like to do all this in today's volatile environment? We'll find out together over the next few minutes. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's wonderful to join you today. Let's start with something more that's a bit more general. Why did you choose to to get involved in in impact investing? Not everyone can do it. What motivates you to to do this every day? So my journey into the industry was very intentional. Um, You know, I started my career um, in the arts, actually. So I had had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with a really diverse uh, constituency of artists, philanthropy folks, and really had been around fundraising, but not in the conventional sense. So understanding where there's a capital need to support, mm-hmm. um, you know, to support an endeavor that provides civic good, public good, but isn't a conventional, um, it's not a conventional investment space. So I really took, you know, that understanding. And when I transitioned away from the arts, really wanted to be thoughtful around what does impact investing really mean? How do we make decisions? And also as a Black female, really thinking about the identity that I have as a person, the communities that I grow up in, the communities that my family and friends have grown up in, particularly in the U.S., and wanting to Mm -hmm. think through the investment landscape and how to make a difference. And so that was really sort of the beginning of my journey. And then ultimately, in terms of what motivates me every day, um, there's a lot of work to be done. I think, you know, candidly, the the industry keeps me up at night. There are a lot of... (laughs) Uh, societal challenges. There are a lot of gaps that persist in society, whether that be racial inequality, wealth inequality, uh, inequality with regard to allocation of resources, you know, depending on whether you're in an urban environment or rural environment. So there's this there's this inequality aspect or just a difference that's pretty, um, pretty visible. And so as a part of that, uh, you know, for me, I really thought, okay, when it comes to impact investing, the legacy in emerging markets is exciting and very interesting, but I really wanted to be able to deliver upon those goals and think about how to do well and do good in the United States and the real estate industry, and in particular, community development and affordable housing provided a really fantastic way for me to very quickly tap into um, an, an industry that really had a lot of history that I didn't know until I really started to roll up my sleeves and get involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, there's this uh, very volatile environment, and then we've we've just gone through a pandemic that changed lots of things, and I'm sure it also changed attitudes towards making social impacts. How much have those attitudes changed? So I think there's been a significant shift as a result of the pandemic. You know, I would say that just generally, as a society, there was this enormous destabilizing force that had so much uncertainty around it that it really impacted everyone. And it challenged our understanding as investors and as people with regard to who is essential, what jobs are essential, what is the certainty around, you know, where you're going to live, sources of income, health, access to resources to support just surviving. And as Mm -hmm. a result of that, 
you really saw just a groundswell of momentum from a variety of stakeholders. So the legacy impact investors, as an example, so thinking about foundations, groups that have done uh, PRI type of investing for many years, that's mission driven. Those folks were well suited to activate quickly and very quickly be able to ideate products and raise funds around those mandates. But you also saw new entrants. You saw uh, corporations who had workers who were really clamoring for a response with regard to the social need, whether that's related to the uh, social injustice movement that was happening at the same time as the pandemic, or really just understanding families being you know, faced with challenges that they had to work through right. just to have just to make ends meet. And I think the other piece of it, um, you know, certainly is that we were all a captive audience. So we were ultimately at home. You couldn't go anywhere. So you were not able to avoid um, being able to see globally just how uh, impactful this was. And I think in particular, um, here in the US, we were able to see the disproportionate impact that the pandemic had on just being able to proceed through daily life for some of the most vulnerable folks. So folks that are lower income, communities of color, uh, you know, instances where the folks on the front lines were your wage work, hourly wage workers, individuals who don't necessarily have the same sustaining wealth base that other, other groups might have. So I think it really created a lot of momentum. And, and I would say also, just from a data point perspective, we saw in 2020, you know, over $20 billion in impact funds. That number has grown over time. The industry today has grown to over a trillion dollars as of last year relative to what to the information that the Global Impact Investing Network has sourced. So you, I would say that you very much have seen growth as a result of the pandemic really catalyzing people moving forward and really contributing to the space. There have been some longstanding legacy players in the space. But, you know, more you're now increasingly seeing individuals looking for ways in which they can access impact investment products. So you're seeing more retail products that are available for investors of varying levels. You're seeing institutional investors create dedicated sleeves and their asset allocations to go towards impact. And I think it's also important just to mention, you know, the alignment between impact investing and ESG generally is mm -hmm. a very special relationship in that not every ESG initiative is necessarily tied to an impact investment vehicle, but ultimately impact investing can be a strategy or a tactic that, um, you know, asset owners, that fund managers, and that investors can seek through which to achieve, you know, uh, achieve goals that are related to ESG and that roll up to ESG. So we've seen growth also in the ESG assets under management globally as well. And in particular in real estate, which is where, you know, I spend all of my time, um, Within the last number of years, as of the middle of last year, over 50% of real estate um, assets under management were ESG oriented for some of the largest institutional investors in the country. So think public pensions, large institutions like mm -hmm. that that are regularly investing in real assets. You're starting to see a lot of growth uh, among that constituency around ESG investing. And then, of course, some of those would very likely include specific impact investments. Yet today, it is it is quite difficult to be active as an investment company in, in this high inflation, high interest rate environment. What is FCP's approach to impact investing in this landscape, in this economic landscape? Um, as a real estate investment company and really a multifamily owner operator um, that's very hands-on and has been doing work 
in the space uh, indirectly, I would say for over 20 years since our inception, you know, we really have been thoughtful around the fact that we ultimately own and operate a number of apartment homes across the country, and in particular, own and operate a number of workforce housing apartment communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result of that, uh, we are very intentional in making sure that the communities that we own and operate are ones that are healthy, safe, uh, wonderful places for families to live. And as a part of that work, I think, you know, to your question regarding our approach to impact investing, our goal is always to have a positive impact on the communities that we serve and the communities in which we invest. But that goes a step further by really activating our ESG um, initiatives generally. And then of course, having a dedicated investment strategy around the preservation of affordable housing is another way in which we do that. So we think around things such as, you know, how can we impact the people that live in our communities through resident services? How can we impact the environment by being thoughtful around you know, the best practices when it comes to sustainability improvements. Uh, We are very active in buying existing apartment communities, many of which are quite old and, you know, maybe from the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so we've come a long way with regard to just innovation and best practices when it comes to the built environment. So being able to implement some of those um, efficiency projects into our work is another way that we try to deliver upon our impact investing goals. So I would say the approach is really anchored by, you know, a few core tenants. One being very intentional, uh, making sure that there's an intentionality to the business planning and the execution that we work through when we are making investments, investments when we're selecting, when we're managing for risk that could be tied to uh, an ESG or impact related area really being thoughtful around um, the evidence-based approach to how we're going to report out to our investors with regard to making an impact and thinking about Mm -hmm. the frameworks that exist. And then also really managing for outcomes in the ways that I mentioned just a moment ago by thinking about, you know, how do we show up as an owner operator? How can we make sure that we're making our apartment communities more resilient while also creating value for our investors as well? And how do you manage investor expectations? Can profit and impact really go hand in hand? So, you know, this, it it certainly can. And the the tagline with an impact investing that you'll often hear is doing doing well by doing good. You can achieve both. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um, a critical part of managing investor expectations is really understanding what their priorities are. Um, Not all investors are created equal and not all investors that are investing in impact funds or impact related strategies have impact as their first priority. Uh, You know, real estate is a great example where the affordable housing segment of the asset class is a very compelling investment opportunity. Um, there is, it's backed by fundamentals just relative to supply, demand mismatch, thinking about the resilience over cycles. So there are some investors who are really anchoring to um, not only the fact that there is a positive impact, but at the same time, they're really anchoring to the real estate investment thesis that is substantiated and is agnostic of the impact, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. I would also say, you know, you have investors who are mission-driven as a first priority. Um, so you have to find ways to sync up investors with different priorities that are all anchoring around a strategy that they believe has merit. And I think it's also important, you know, and probably the most critical piece is that the intermediation of the manager really is the differentiator and the value proposition through a lot of um, a lot of these efforts, being able to achieve profit, being able to achieve a double bottom line outcome really will often be reliant upon your manager's ability to understand 
how to implement these programs effectively, how to think about, you know, long-term uh, value creation and where investing in something like resident services in an apartment community might have an impact further down the line in that investment hold period where you're retaining more tenants because it's a place where they want to live. They're being supported in other ways beyond just having a place to live. And when it comes to returns, what level of returns can investors expect for, for impact investing in affordable housing communities? Can these investments really produce market level returns? So with, re with regard to investing in affordable housing communities, I think it's important to point to um, some of the fundamentals that really speak to that question. Every investment product um, that supports affordable housing and really any in impact investing product, they're, they're not all created equal and they have different right. goals and priorities. Um, but what I would say is, you know, what we know about um, the affordable housing space is that for individuals that are earning below 80% of area median income. So if you think about the median income nationally, and I'll just give you an example, since you know we are based in the DC Metro, the area median income in the DC Metro as of this year is $150,000 a year. So any households that are earning below um, 80% of that number, you know, those are folks that are at the highest risk of experiencing rent burden. And so just writ large across the country, the number of units available to serve people earning, uh, I think what most would consider a middle income, slightly, slightly below median income level um, wages and, and income, those folks are facing a 2 million unit shortage of available affordable housing today. So you have a very persistent, uh, pervasive supply demand mismatch. And depending on you know, what submarket or city you're in, um, that could be exacerbated even further. So I think some of those fundamental aspects, when you think about target return, that's really going to depend on the product. But what we do know is that there is the ability to um, offer a risk-adjusted investment opportunity that's supported by the same underwriting metrics that you would use for um, a more conventional, non-impact sort of core or core plus um, investment fund that is looking, you know, maybe not at affordable housing or even multifamily, but is really evaluating risk, return, um, you know, expense, those different types of metrics. Uh, but it really depends on the actual um, investment fund. I will say there are a number of funds out there that are able to provide um, returns that are benchmarked to more conventional um, more conventional real estate funds that are not focused on affordable housing. So you do have good examples of that. And then you also have some that are much more catalytic, what we call but-for capital, where you know without that capital investment at a very concessionary level of return, a particular impact investment strategy would not be possible or a particular transaction would not be possible. And you see a lot of foundations and other groups who have concessionary capital able to deliver very deep impact through those types of strategies. Mm -hmm. Because the common myth is that impact investing involves sacrificing financial returns. And there are a lot of other myths and, and misconceptions surrounding impact investing in, in low-income in, uh, communities. Can you talk about these misconceptions, the ones that you um, come across more often? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you're right to point out that that there is this myth that it's that you do have to sacrifice financial return. Um, when it comes to misconceptions around investing in low-income communities, I would say 
Um, one of the most critical ones is really the risk that's associated with low-income people and low-income places. Um, you know, the, the legacy of redlining um, in the U.S. is really based on the thesis that a certain demographic based on race or income were somehow less credit worthy. And that translated into where capital would flow into certain neighborhoods. And over time, you know, as professionals in, the, in this industry, we've been working very diligently to dispel that myth by evaluating the metrics and really saying how resilient are renters who are living in low-income communities? Um, you know, what does it mean if you've got a tenant base that is receiving uh, subsidy through a government-sponsored um, voucher program, for example, that might provide higher than market rate income in some cases? I would also say that, you know, you mentioned COVID earlier, there's really wonderful, compelling data through the National Multifamily Housing Council and others with respect to the relative inelasticity of renters and their resilience and the fact that folks consistently, whether they're low, moderate, or middle income, are paying their rent and are doing it largely on time, even during unprecedented distress. Um, so that provides some additional data um, around the resiliency of the, of the asset class. We've got great data around the relatively low default rates when it comes to the loans that are, are um, being issued to be able to finance affordable housing. So mm -hmm. trying to sort of pull apart risk associated with a demographic relative to the risk of the actual investments. And we've got good data that suggests that these are relatively low risk investments when you compare to more conventional market rate uh, multifamily. I would also say, you know, the other misconception is around outperformance. So we've seen historically as far back as the prior recession in 2008. Um, and then, you know, obviously currently today, uh, depending on on where the, the economic landscape goes in the future, we've seen outperformance right. from affordable housing, in particular, the regulated affordable housing, what we call the low-income housing tax credit or Section 8 is another type of program. You're seeing that those assets are outperforming assets that are unrestricted and that are prioritizing higher income earners. Because again, um, you know, there is a durability to the low and moderate income demographic and to those communities. There's an incredible need. So you're ultimately able to consistently operate um, and drive revenue in an appropriate manner that makes the investment not only make sense, but also be compelling on a risk-adjusted basis. You have a lot of experience in, in affordable and workforce housing. What would you say is the most difficult thing about working in, in this industry today? In affordable housing, community development finance, and also impact investing, there are a lot of terms. There's a lot of nomenclature. We've got uh, you know, big A or regulated affordable housing. We have naturally occurring affordable housing. We have attainable housing. So there's all these concepts trying to point towards an understanding that um, there's a segment of housing that's intended to be more attainable for individuals without being burdensome. So I'd say that is one challenge, is just a differing of terms and a lack of standardization across. I would also say, you know, just fundamentally, affordability is a relative measure. Um, the way that we think about it and we look at it is really as a percentage relative to a benchmark that's specific to a place, to whatever the incomes are in that place. Right. And there are some instances where what is definitionally affordable may deliver a very deeply impactful outcome if you're investing in a product in that particular area. And there are other areas where what broadly fits in the box um, might not seem to really sort of qualify as an impact investment or as affordable housing to someone else. A good 
example would be, you know, in New York City, what definitionally qualifies for afford as affordable housing when you actually look at um, median incomes, that's a much higher number than if you're looking at, you know, let's say Cleveland, Ohio, where that the benchmarks start to move around. So I think in particular, what is difficult um, is really helping investors understand what does affordable actually mean and what does it mean in this particular place? And I think a great way to get there as a fund manager and also for investors is to consider who are you, who are you trying to serve? Um, you know, at FCP, our priority is really focusing on the workforce housing demographic folks who are primarily earning below 80% of area median income. But we also take that a step further. We're very focused in our impact strategies on being able to provide additional opportunity um, and resources to families. Um, and so having an understanding that that is part of the demographic we want to make sure that we're touching irrespective of the calculation of affordability, there is, you know, I hate to use the, the cliche phrase and it's an art and a science. There's a certain uh, bit of judgment that's really focused on who you're, who you want your direct beneficiary to be from this work. And I think investors will increasingly start to try to pick that apart and understand, okay, I know it's affordable, but what does that actually mean? Going back to your your work as vice president at FCP, what do you look at when analyzing potential deals? Are there different benchmarks for social investments? So we have, um, you know, we are thoughtful around ESG, which includes the social component across the platform. And we uh, are very intentional about evaluating ESG-related impacts on all of the investments we make, irrespective of whether or not it's specific to um, an impact strategy or not. Um, what I would say, though, is that, you know, to the point I raised a moment ago, when it comes to our impact focus strategy on the preservation of affordable housing, we really are targeting um, a certain tenant demographic. We want to really focus on communities that can benefit from resident services, such as providing, you know, after school support um, in resident communities in the community space, um, providing access to educational resources around financial education, around building credit. Um, and so part of what we look for when analyzing deals is there's a financial analysis that really is looking to scope out the opportunity relative to um, the target returns um, that we might be pursuing on an investment. Also looking at the affordability piece, we wanna know and take comfort that through sound underwriting, the affordability that we're, in, that we're endeavoring to preserve long-term can actually be preserved based on mm -hmm. that underwriting at the beginning of the process. And then we asset manage towards those goals. Um, and then also finally, but perhaps most important is ensuring that the wraparound of impact services uh, is applicable to a potential investment. So if there's an investment that is checking all of the financial boxes, but isn't going to get us closer to the target outcomes that we're seeking on the impact side, that may not be the right opportunity for an impact strategy, whereas a more conventional strategy doesn't necessarily always consider both, but may endeavor to have impact as an additional, um, an additional aspect, you know, where it makes sense, but not in every case. Right. Can you tell us more about the, the impact investing initiatives that you're involved in right now at FCP? So at FCP, you know, we are very active as thought leaders in the real estate industry and um, particularly in the multifamily space. 
And so some of what we're working on today is really being founding members of the Multifamily Impact Council, our co-founder, Lacey Rice, as well as our head of ESG. Um, Summer Haltley have been instrumental in helping to stand up and advance that initiative and move it forward with a consortium of other like-minded real estate owner operators and stakeholders. And the goal of the council is really to um, uplift a set of principles that are standardized and really directly applicable to um, multifamily impact and helping to define what that means. Uh, the goal really is to ensure that we're talking about how we deliver impact on a consistent basis across firms um, and across strategies, and also that investors will increasingly have a benchmark and data to rely upon to really understand that if they're investing with a partner who follows those principles, they can take comfort in the same way that investors may take comfort in you know, thinking about uh, managers that are looking at the sustainable development goals or that might you know be you know might ascribe to gresp or some of these other frameworks that are mm-hmm. within impact investing in real estate but not necessarily specific to multifamily impact and what are the most sought after impact related housing investment instruments today so there's some really fantastic trends that we're seeing you know within affordable housing just generally we've started to see an uptick in the number of funds that are open-ended. Um, and these evergreen investment funds are really critical to aligning long-term mission um, with respect to preserving affordability or creating more affordable housing uh, with the actual structure of the investment vehicle. You know, Historically, there have been a number of closed-end funds that managers have executed with to do affordable housing-related investments. The challenge, though, is that ultimately that fund has to be wound down as assets are sold. So the trend Mm -hmm. around the open-ended fund concept is one where there's quite a bit of energy, and I think we expect to see that to continue to grow. I would also say there's a lot of momentum around emerging manager initiatives that are really seeking to uh, really improve the industry's um, lack of representation from women and people of color in leadership seats for investment funds or investment platforms and firms. And so you're seeing increasingly dedicated um, strategies or dedicated investment allocation that is intended to support um, a diverse array of uh, talented uh, and experienced investment managers to really just increase diversity within the real estate industry writ large. And then Mm -hmm. lastly, I would say, you know, one that is Um, more fledgling, but really exciting to see is around catalytic capital. So that's going to be really more anchored around the concessionary uh, impact investment approach where you are trading uh, return for deep impact. And in those instances, you're seeing some really interesting investment funds that think through how to extend the value creation that's established by investing in a particular affordable housing community and extend that out so that the residents who who contribute to the increase in value by residing there, uh, you know, ultimately being good residents, continuing to pay their rent, that they f- find a way to benefit from the equity that's created in the building itself. So we're seeing some trends around that. We're also seeing some trends around home ownership and single family rental and thinking about ways in which those strategies can ultimately unlock access to um, housing equity in a different way for residents who historically have been locked out of the ability to purchase a home. So there's some interesting trends in that regard as well. And public-private partnership would be the last I'd call out. You know, oftentimes I've had conversations with 
uh, peers or stakeholders who are not based here in the U.S. And, you know, we have a very different approach with regard to um, how to provide housing and how housing subsidy works. We don't have a very robust public housing universe here in the U.S. And historically, it's been underfunded and has faced a number of challenges to make that sustainable. So what you're starting to see is a much more public-private partnership where the public sector recognizes in their communities and their backyards you know, there are households and families and people facing unprecedented challenges, being able to purchase a home, being able to, you know, keep up with rent growth in the area, or even being able to identify sufficient supply that they can get access to. And so in order to incentivize and to really, you know, accelerate um, the creation of new housing, whether it be through preservation, which is the most expeditious way to create more mm-hmm. supply, or by providing, uh, you know, opportunity for new development, you're seeing the public sector in different cities, counties, different jurisdictions step forward and partner directly with private investors and private fund managers and real estate owner operators to say, how do we structure uh, an actual um, investment strategy or an investment transaction such that we can deliver upon the goals that we have for our stakeholders, which are the constituents of the community, and that we can also leverage the expertise and the nimbleness of a practitioner and a private firm who really knows how to efficiently own and operate and invest in real estate. So we're seeing a lot of momentum through either dedicated programs or we're seeing you know, opportunities where owner operators like FCP and others are stepping forward to really um, you know, be thought leaders and a partner with the public sector on individual investment opportunities or in very specific communities to really think through how can we work towards these goals together and ultimately that begets new investments and new opportunity. What do you hope will be the ripple effects of impact investing in the multifamily industry? You kind of touched on this a bit before uh, while answering my previous question, but do you expect it to bring any major changes in the industry in the long run? So I think, um, you know, the ripple effects will be one that increasingly we'll see more investors with much more significant capital to invest in real estate, specifically interested in um, investing along the spectrum that would qualify as affordable housing, whether that's naturally occurring uh, affordable housing or regulated housing. I think you'll also start to see um, that increasingly, whether an owner operator or fund manager is focused on impact or not, you'll start to see very intentional efforts around ESG related programming. So you'll see more sustainability um, projects and implementation show up because it will be increasingly be required. Um, You'll also start to see that the focus on affordability will be the anchor, but ultimately investors and others will be looking for intentionality that goes beyond. What additionality are you providing? Are you are you providing resources, services, other ways to wrap around your apartment community? Um, and so I think we'll start to see some of those uh, initial trends start to pick up over time and that that will become the standard. Hopefully. <laughs> yes, hopefully. I hope, I hope so. And I think, I mean, you know, just to point to that, I I'm, I have more than hope in that regard because, you know, we have seen this directly and increasingly, um, I think others are seeing it as well, that the additionality point really does ultimately accrete to value. You are creating a better community that ultimately has more value. We're seeing more impact investors that are buying and selling assets, which means there's capital 
looking to find a home in those opportunities. Um, and so I think we'll start to see those different components start to sort of work in concert towards the outcome. So I'm, I'm more than hopeful that that's where we'll ultimately go. And I think the greatest benefit that we could achieve, in my opinion, if that does happen, is we will have good clarifying data that can be benchmarked and that can disaggregate the impact investing segment of multifamily investing away from just multifamily more broadly so that some of the things we talked about earlier, like misconceptions around mm-hmm. risk, return, et cetera, we can start to strip away some of the noise by lumping everything together and really focus on this particular asset class. But I believe that has to be data-driven. So the more investment that we can um, bring into the space that requires intentional reporting, which impact investors always require, uh, I think we'll be able to get to some instruments and tools that'll just even further fortify the industry thesis and ha- really give us some data to stand to stand firmly on that really um, indicates just the merits of of the work that we're doing and why it is a good investment overall. One last question. If you could give all multifamily investors one piece of advice about impact investing, what would it be? So, you know, I guess if I could give one piece of advice, I would say, you know, in terms of investors, I'll, I'll address this in two ways. For the allocators that are allocating to a real estate um, investment firm, such as an FCP, really considering the cultural competency and fluency alongside of the investment fundamentals of the managers that you're working with. It's such a critical component. Um, You know, we're very fortunate that we have ESG and impact investing ethos as part of our culture and process, um, but that takes intentional effort and work. And so I think for allocators who are really focused on impact investing, being rigorous around evaluating how the managers that you're selecting show up, along those different vectors that are not necessarily just track record, but also are tied to their in- the intentionality of their approach. And then I would say for multifamily investors who are the GP, where you are, you are the direct investor owner operator, um, you know, really being thoughtful around um, the additional needs in communities that extend beyond simply the apartment community itself. I think that's a really critical piece is um, being thoughtful around the investments you can make that extend beyond just improving the property, but how are you improving the community for the residents that live there? And also how are you being a partner to the broader community writ large? Because I've seen that really be a force multiplier for the benefit of the asset, but also for the benefit of all those that are that are there as well. Alicia, thank you so much for all these insights. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening and make sure you check multihousingnews.com regularly for the latest news, trend stories, and podcasts.